You're listening to Chameleon Church. Biblical antidotes for the modern man. With your host, Alan Aguirre. A Faceless Gen production. say Christianity, I mean it as a general whole. Um, a 2010 census says that 80%, actually 79.5% of the American population calls themselves Christian. And we all know that there's no way possible that 80% of our country knows Jesus. It's just not possible. So, I'm talking about that 80%. When I say, when I say Christianity uh, in a derogatory form, I'm talking about the whole general consensus of Christendom. And 80% of this population, of this country, considers themselves in one way, shape, or another aligned, you know, Christian. That's a little weird. Uh, there's 30 plus years of Fuller Theological Seminary's data that proves that 80% of Christians... So whatever that is of that 80%, right? That 80% of Christians will not meet their destiny in the Lord. Will not walk out their destiny in their life as Christians unto the Lord. Because they're going to respond with their practical reasoning. They're going to pick the easy way out. They're not going to go for it. They're They're going to cop out. And they're just going to kind of just go with the flow. 80%, that's 8 out of 10 Christians. And that stat comes up all the time in a lot of different things. It's always 80%, 80%, 80%. So, 8 out of 10 of you will not walk out your destiny in the Lord because you're going to pick the things of this world. My life, my job, you know. Things are going to get in the way of you actually just going full-blown, all the way, hardcore for Jesus. That's a little scary. And a lot of these things that we're talking about fall in line with that because a lot of you aren't going to do this. It's just real simple. I know this. I know this going... You remember when Jesus looked at Peter and said, you're going to deny me, right? Three times before the cock crows. Remember that? Well, when he was remember being uh, taken across the court, Jesus, uh, Jesus looks because Peter had just finished denying him, right? And Jesus says in the Gospels that Jesus looked at him and Peter was like, oh my gosh, and ran... Was Jesus looking at him like, man, what a loser. Gosh, disappointed. Look what you've done. Or was it, gotcha, I told you you were going to do that. It was more, gotcha, I knew you were going to do that because he knew he was going to do that. So it's not like it surprised Jesus that Peter denied him. Right? It didn't surprise him. In the same way, a lot of people aren't going to do what we're about to talk about for all sorts of great excuses. So, what are we talking about? 
talking about the Feast of Our God. A real quick recap. The Spring Feast. The Spring Feast. The four Spring Feasts or, uh, or festivals are Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Shavuot, also otherwise known as Pentecost. And that's because both happened on the same day. They primarily teach about the significant events and the first coming of Messiah. These feasts are God's feasts. I want to repeat that. These feasts are God's feasts. And His appointed times that we are to observe. We went through that last week. The Hebrew word for feasts in English means an appointment, a fixed time or season, a cycle or year, an assembly, an appointed time, a set time or exact time to move in a cycle. Uh, or in a circle, to march in a sacred procession, to celebrate, dance, to hold a solemn feast or holiday. By understanding these Hebrew meanings of the words for feast, we can see that God is telling us that he is ordaining a set time or an exact time, an appointed time, when he has established an appointment with humanity and are to be observed yearly. Another important Hebrew word regarding these appointments or set assemblies is the word mikra. In English, it's the descriptive descriptive word convocation which means something called out, a public meeting, a rehearsal, assembly, calling, reading. And the definition rehearsal we talked about to rehearse is to practice in private for a public presentation. And with these Hebrew definitions, Leviticus 23.2 would then read something like this. Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Aronai, or the feast, which you are to proclaim as holy rehearsals or holy convocations are my designated times. It's uh, kind of, you can't really, can't, uh, can't, there's not a lot of wiggle room. He has appointed certain times in, our, in the calendar, his calendar, for us to meet him. Now, if you knew Jesus was going to be baptized in the Jordan River tomorrow afternoon at 3, you would do everything in your power, I would hope, to go and be there to see that event. Or the parting of the Red Sea. Or raising Lazarus from the dead. We are able to do that. There are set times that God is going to meet us or, you know, is going to be there for, you know, to meet with us. It's on us to, to actually show up. Again, not only are these designated times set by God, appointments for his people to meet him, but these specific holy rehearsals are also not Jewish feasts. They're just not feasts for Israel. These are God's feasts scheduled by God for his people. I want to be his people. Jesus, or Yeshua, fills... He fulfills the spring feast. He sacrificed himself on the feast of Passover. He was buried on the feast of unleavened bread. He was resurrected on the feast of first fruits. And he sent the Holy Spirit on the feast of weeks, otherwise known as Shavuot or Pentecost. The practices of each of these spring feasts clearly depict the death and resurrection of Jesus. Nice. Jesus, or Yeshua, is the Passover Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29 Yeshua is the unleavened bread of life. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. There it is again. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6.51 Yeshua is the first fruits. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Okay, these are all New Testament texts pointing to what? These Seemingly Old Testament irrelevant Jewish feast. Yeshua sent the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, Pentecost. And when the day of Pentecost had come, or Shavuot, they were all together in one place, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 2. 
All right, we're going to break it down. Last week we talked about the feasts in general, the importance of them. Now we're going to break them down because they're coming up. Passover. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Leviticus 23, 1 through 2, 4 through 5. I'm using the New King James Version, so no one can question my Hebrew versions as being one-sided or biased. Historically, Passover marks the national liberation of the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery. Pesah, the Hebrew name of the feast, literally means the lamb. God instructed each Hebrew family in Egypt to take an unblemished year-old male lamb to their home on the tenth day of the first month. They were to examine the lamb for four days to see that it was perfect. On the fourth day at twilight, or the fourteenth day of twilight, they were to kill the lamb and take some of the lamb's blood and place it on the two doorposts and the lintel of their house, the threshold. On the first Passover, the, aver- the avenging angel of God killed every firstborn male throughout the land, from Pharaoh's house to the home of the slave and every firstborn animal. From Pharaoh's house to the slaves to the firstborn animal. The angel would pass over those homes that protected themselves by placing the blood of a lamb on their doorposts and thresholds. So the fulfillment of Passover by Yeshua, the Passover lamb, will find for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, 1 Corinthians. That's Paul writing to Gentiles about the significance of Jesus being a Passover lamb. Because Gentiles aren't supposed to do this. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, we find that in Isaiah the prophet, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, Elijah, spirit of Elijah is in him, greatest prophet. I mean, this is real stuff. Then we have the procession of the lamb. Right? So they pick the lamb, they examine it, and now they're going to have a procession for that lamb. When Israel had a temple, in addition to the lamb for each household, a lamb was chosen to die for the sins of the entire nation. This happened on the 10th of Nisan. It was led in a huge procession from Bethany to the temple. During the procession, the people waved palm branches and sang psalms, including, O Lord, save us, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalms 118. Yeshua rode into the city to the temple on the same day, the 10th of Nisan, as a procession of the lamb chosen to die for the sins of the nation. By doing this, he was proclaiming himself to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Yeshua passed, the people shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So for most of us who have been in Christianity for any amount of time, we see and understand and know what they call the Catholics, and we took it from them, Palm Sunday. Is it it? Palm Sunday, right? That's how how much I know about that stuff. So it's Palm Sunday. Well, we don't know, for the most part, the majority of us don't know that this is actually, he's just playing out the role of what's already happening on the other side of town with the priest and the lamb that's been picked and examined. See? It's that cyclical concept again. God's, this is how God does this stuff. Abraham, Mount Moriah. Jesus, Mount Moriah. Same thing with Isaac. Yeshua, the Passover lamb, examined. All right, Remember we talked about the lamb has to be examined. Just as the Passover lamb was examined for four days prior to Passover, so Yeshua entered the temple and was examined for four days prior to Passover by the Sadducees and the the Pharisees, the ruling religious authority, just like the lamb was 
being done by the priests, Sanhedrin, and all that. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in word, what he said, Matthew 22. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. And we all, have, you know, we all know about these little pieces in the New Testament where they examined him, they were questioning him, they're trying to trap him. They brought lawyers into the picture, right? This happened because he's being examined. Does he qualify? Is he going to pass the Deuteronomy 13 test? Right? So, the lambs are prepared for sacrifice. Yeshua was prepared for sacrifice and beaten in the morning of Passover, just as a lamb to be sacrificed in the temple was prepared on Passover morning. Now when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they found him and led him away. Right? We all know what we're talking about here. Early morning, Garden of Gethsemane. Speaking of the Garden of Gethsemane, how many have been to Israel? Raise your hand. And you've been to the Mount of Olives, or the Catholic side of the Mount of Olives. There's a lot across the street that probably is more the right one. I was going to show you a picture that I took from that spot, but I didn't put it up there. How many know how olives are harvested? Ah, because you went probably with a Gentile teacher or guide. We had the benefit of going with our friend Rami, who's a native Israeli, who's a believer and has an off-the-wall prophetic teaching gift. This is how he explained olives are harvested. You have your olive tree. You either beat the tree with a stick, and they fall. Or you shake the tree violently, and they fall. Or you strip the branches, and then you like, with the branches with your hand, so the olives all come off. Does that make sense? Right. Then, they're put on top of this cloth, on top, there's these big stones with this cloth, and the olives are laid out on these cloths, and then massive stones are put on top of it to squeeze out the juice. And if they're, if they're ripe olives, the juice is red, like blood. So, that's how olives are harvested for the oil. Think about what Jesus was going through in the garden. He was being put, pressured. He was being har- His father was harvesting him. In the garden that night. Isn't that amazing? Anyway, I thought that was amazing. And when you're standing there looking at all these old olive trees, and you're going, wow. <laughs> Where are we? Okay. So the chief priests, elders, and the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away. After having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. He's being prepared for sacrifice. Lamb slain. Between the evenings, Yeshua was slain at the same time the unblemished lamb was slain on Passover, according to God's instructions. The Passover lamb had to be slain between the evenings, Exodus 12. Yeshua gave up his spirit at the exact time the lambs were to be killed, the ninth hour. Between the evenings and the ninth hour are based on the manner by which the temple priests calculated time. Both refer to the same hour, roughly three o'clock in the afternoon. So when he's going, it is finished. The priest in the temple is it is finished. It's all happening at the same time. It has to. It has to be exactly the same exact thing and the exact same time or he is not Messiah. Real simple. See, no Passover in Egypt, no children of Israel in the land, no Messiah. Now, I don't know if you know about the Catholic Church working with the Palestinian Authority in the land. They're trying to claim, you know, because Bethlehem is inside the Palestinian side, the West Bank, they want to 
basically make it official that Jesus is Palestinian. Yeah. And the Catholics are really behind this big push. Do you know what happens if Jesus is a Palestinian, an Arab? He's not Messiah. It's impossible. He can't. He has to be from the seed of David. He has to be a Hebrew. He has to be Israeli. He has to be a Jew. And all these little things all have to line up or he's a fake. Liar, lunatic, you know. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So what's the practical application? I didn't even put it up there because it's really a simple practical application. Observe Passover, not Easter. It's very practical. We all know, we've talked, somebody's talked to you about Easter. Right? I'm sure you've shared about Easter. We, don't do that. Don't dip eggs in blood or colored water. Don't do the rabbit thing. Don't do the sunrise service. That's Tammuz. It's bell worship. Right? So what do we do? If we're going to be people of God, God's saying, hey, I'm over here, and they're all over there doing something else. But God knows their hearts. Yeah, He does. It's wicked. It's the most horrible thing in all the universe. I mean, see what I'm saying? I'm not anti-Christian. I never left Christianity. Ever. I'm not anti-Christian. I'm just anti-false teaching. I'm just anti-paganism. I'm anti-demonic replacements. Like we talked about. Remember we talked about the Ishmaels and the Isaacs? The counterfeits? And I drew, had that cool little diagram of Easter and the counting of six weeks when, Jesus, when God says count seven weeks after. It's just, I'm anti-Ishmaels. That's what I am. I'm not anti-Christian, I'm anti-Ishmaels. And if there's Ishmaels in the church, uh, uh, we have to be standard bearers. Don't do Easter. That's the practical application of this part of, this, of the message. Do Passover instead. It's pretty simple, right? Alright, the next one. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. What do you mean God doesn't want me to eat bread? <laughs> That's so insignificant. Yeah, try it. Day three, you're losing your mind. The spiritual attack is crazy. Why? Because you're being obedient to the Lord. Did you know if you obey the Lord, the enemy will come against you? Adam and Eve, they weren't even humans. They were immortals. And they were seduced to, to disobey. That's how he works. It's the little things. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover was the evening of the 14th, remember? The 15th day, the next day, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days, you must eat unleavened bread. Doesn't sound like a suggestion. This is a commandment. You must eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. We already know what that means. A holy rehearsal. You shall do no customary work on it. Oh, it's a Sabbath. It's a high Sabbath. But you shall offer an offering made by far to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the day following the eve of Passover, starting in the evening again, and we'll show, I'll show you this because so, it can get a little complicated or confusing, is a, is a Sabbath. And the last day of the Feast of Unleavened day, Bread, the seventh day, is also a high Sabbath. And you're going to have your regular Sabbath in between. You know why Donald Trump is so successful? Because he honors the Jew and the Christian. Every Jew that works for Donald Trump has all these days off. 
So they actually work more, uh, they actually work less hours than most people. And they still make more money. How does that work? Well, God said, test me in the Old Testament. Do this, test me. It's very interesting. So that's Leviticus. Pretty significant. Historically, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a remembrance of God bringing the Hebrews out of Egypt. The first day of the feast begins at sunset and is a Sabbath eve, Erev Shabbat, making the first day of the feast a high Sabbath day. The Feast of Unleavened Bread continues for seven days. During this period, only unleavened bread is to be eaten. And I don't know if I used, but the scripture in Exodus says, if you don't, if you eat leavened bread during this, you're cast out of Israel. Not good. The Feast of Unleavened Bread continues for seven days. During this period, only unleavened bread is to be eaten. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is symbolic of Yeshua's death and burial and his fulfilling of prophetic patterns of the feast. And we concluded, I hope, last week that Jesus wasn't in the tomb spanning three days, roughly 40 hours. I think the guy that created time and space knows the difference between 40 hours and three days. So, he was in the tomb three days and we talked about that last week. Here's how, here's how it works. No bones broken. Though it was a common and merciful Roman practice to break the legs of the crucified to hasten their death and relieve their suffering, none of Yeshua's bones were broken, just as a Passover lamb is to have no broken bones. John 19, the soldiers therefore came. Was that it? Yeah, the sol- soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified but him, with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. That's all you have to do. Just this lawless Roman, all he had to do is break his leg just to, to break the pattern. But it wasn't going to happen because he was indeed Messiah. Number two, Yeshua, the pure unleavened bread. When breaking the bread at his last meal, Yeshua said to his disciples, Take and eat, this is my body. And it was unleavened. It was a Passover Seder. The Last Supper was a Passover Seder. It was unleavened bread. Leaven represents sin. Thus, unleavened bread is a good representation of our sinless Messiah, the bread of life. Yeshua bore stripes. From the Roman beatings, the unleavened bread is marked with stripes. I thought I'd throw this in here. Yeshua was pierced in the side when he was crucified. The unleavened bread has holes pierced throughout. For cooking, Yeshua was born in the town of Bethlehem, which translates from Hebrew, house of bread. Like the father who wraps the unleavened bread in linen, hides, buries it, and later redeems it during the Passover Seder, Yeshua was wrapped in linen, buried, and he paid the price of our redemption with his perfect sacrifice. Matthew, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb. The light of the world. The candles lit by the woman of the home during the Sabbath and Passover are symbolic of the Messiah, the light of the world. And if you've been to a Shabbat, you've heard the song, you've heard the prayer, we state that. Um, we don't do the rabbinical, which says that you, that basically you save us through your Torah and you command us to light the, light the candles of Shabbat, because that's not true. Uh, you inspire us, because it's the light of the world. And Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. And number four, Yeshua's blood of the new covenant. The wine during the Sabbath and in the Passover meal represents Yeshua's blood, as he told his disciples during his last Passover Seder. When he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And man, I'm just so thankful that he offered me that cup, that I I can take from this covenant. You know, because he picked me. It's not like I did anything. 
he made my need for, for Messiah real to me, and I somehow, for some reason, responded correctly. And that's, man, I'll stop now before I start crying. All right, practical application. Observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I didn't put this up here because you have it in front of you. Let's look at it real quick here. This is the proper way to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread based on Scripture. Start by making sure all leaven has been purged from your home before the Passover. This is where spring cleaning originated from, as we are instructed to do in Exodus 12.15. Yeah, it's actually in there. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. He's not messing around, people. He's serious. This means we clean every room of the house so that all leavened products are removed. We search for breadcrumbs under the cushions of our sofas and chairs, in the pockets of our coats and pants, on pantry floors, and remove every trace. We also thoroughly clean our stove, oven, toasters, refrigerator, cupboards, and freezer. I'm serious. I'm dead serious. It is a big job to clean the house so, so thoroughly, but doing so provides an important object lesson about the need to separate ourselves from corrupting influences in our lives. And this is why most people aren't going to do it. They want to be just where they are. They're happy. They're content. Why would I do all of that? Because he said so. Do you want me to read that verse in Exodus again? On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. I don't know if you can translate that any differently. And you're going to eat unleavened bread, because if you eat leavened bread, you'll be cut off from Israel. I don't think he's, he's not messing around here. We are commanded to remove leaven because it represents a corrupting influence, a hidden uncleanness that manipulates pure elements. Like the influence of a small lump of leaven in a batch of dough, gospel teaching in, in the red letters, spiritual leaven functions as an evil impulse within us that corrupts and sours our inner life. This yeast in the soul is essentially pride that manifests itself in idolatrous desires and lusts. Right? Because we're tempted by the lust of our own flesh. Leaven works silently, not secretly. It spreads by contact. It affects the whole lump. It changes every particle with which it comes in contact into its own kind. It can only be destroyed by purging it out of the lump. No part of it can be permitted to remain or it will begin its work over again. It takes only a little to do the job. And we all mentally went through the list of our little trips, I hope, when I just read that little list. This, this impacts every single one of us. If you don't think it impacts you, you might want to get to know the person of Jesus Christ. Because this is what Christianity is all about overriding this, overcoming this. This is what we were saved for. We were created for good works to overcome this stuff. Not sure what constitutes leaven in your home? Here's a small list of items. Beer and grain alcohol. Yeast. Foods that contain yeast. Soy sauce, olives, sauerkraut, apple cider, potato chips, soups, dry roasted nuts, aged or ripened cheese. And that's why I have this list for you. So you can take it home and go clean your house by Sunday. Baking powders, baking soda, baker's ammonia, grains, vinegar, foods that contain vinegar, mustard, mayonnaise, barbecue sauces, salad dressing, pickles, mayonnaise. Sounds like a Nazarite. <laughs> it's exactly what Nazarites can't eat. All right, Holy Week. 
That's what it's been known as, or Passover week. It's not. It's Passover and then it's a Feast of Unleavened Bread week. I want to explain that to you guys a little bit. The evening after the Passover Seder is when the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. Okay? It is a Sabbath Eve. It's a Rev Shabbat, making the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread a holy rehearsal, holy convocation, and a high Sabbath. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, you shall do no customary work on it. Leviticus 23.7 I'm going to stop here for a second because I want to show you what this looks like because I, I know this stuff confuses people. The week that Jesus was killed looked like this. It was a Tuesday, just like any other Tuesday. He had already been uh, examined. He had, he, had, he had already walked into temp, you know, into Jerusalem. The procession had already occurred. He had already been examined. And here it is, the 14th day. It was a Tuesday. That evening, see how it overlaps? Because God starts the evening and the morning. So Tuesday evening at sunset began the next day. That evening was Passover. He has his meal. He does the Last Supper thing. Tells you to do Passover in remembrance of him. Oh, you thought it was just communion, didn't you? That's what they told you. He's doing Passover. He's not doing communion. He's doing Passover. They knew what he was talking about. We need to get in line with them. So he does Passover. He ouses uh, Judas. Goes to the garden to pray. Right? And very early in the morning of Wednesday, he gets arrested. Now he goes before the Sanhedrin or late at night, somewhere, you know, somewhere around there, because it was against the law because they couldn't do it in the middle of the night or at night. They had to have a proper assembly and they didn't. He's prepared for slaughter. He's taken up to, the, to Golgotha. He's crucified and he dies around three in the afternoon. And you remember the scriptures say they have to pull his body off the cross before the Sabbath. This is why Greco-Roman Christianity believes he died on Friday. Because that's the Sabbath. But if they read their Bible, they would know that the first day of unleavened bread, the day following Passover, which would be Wednesday the 15th, that night is a high Sabbath. That's why they had to get his body off the cross. It wasn't Friday. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Wednesday evening. Sunset. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Day one. It's also a Sabbath. So, they take his body off the cross. They put him in the tomb. Wednesday night. Thursday night. One day. Right? Feast of Unleavened Bread Day 2 begins. Friday. Sunset. Oh, now we have your regular Shabbat. Feast of Unleavened Bread Day 3 is beginning. Wednesday to Thursday is 1. Thursday to Friday is 2. Friday to Saturday is 3. At the end of the Sabbath is what? Feast of First Fruits. That's when he rose after the Sabbath. Feast of First Fruits. He's, he's the first fruits. And he's also out there doing this with vegetation because Mary thinks he's a gardener. And the priest is doing that too. He's offering first fruits. People rise from the dead. We'll read that in a second. Feast of first fruits. It's always going to land at the end of the Sabbath following Passover. So whenever Passover is, because it, right, it bounces around, whenever Passover is, the end of that following Sabbath is always Feast of First Fruits. Now, the Feast of First Fruits 
is also now the beginning of the counting of the Omer. And you count seven Sabbaths. That starts at the end of the Sabbath. 49 days. And the 50th day will always land on a Sunday. Pentecost. Feast of Unleavened Bread, day five. Evening. Feast of Unleavened Bread, day six. And that following Tuesday, he's already, he's already up and around, running around, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The seventh day begins, the Sabbath, leading into Wednesday, which is a, it's a Shabbat. Does this make sense? The Feast of First Fruits, what does that look like? Feast of First Fruits. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. Ah. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. You shall eat. See, the day after the Sabbath, we think it's Sunday. It's not. It's Saturday night because the Sabbath ends in the evening. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering because you're obeying the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You know, he could have told Moses to write, it'll be a statute forever until the coming of the promised Messiah. And he never says that. It never says that. Ever. It's a statute forever in all your dwellings. For all your generations. We're grafted into the house of Israel. And there was non-Jews with them. You can go to the branch website. And you look at the scriptures, of all the scriptures that talk about the alien and the sojourner that aren't Israeli or Jewish or natives that are with you, the same applies. <laughs> Historically, the Feast of First Fruits was the day that the Hebrew slaves went down to the Red Sea and emerged alive on the other side, while Pharaoh was swallowed up by the Red Sea. This set the Israelites free as the first fruits from Egyptian bondage. The Feast of First Fruits falls on the day after the Sabbath during the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, like we explained. This is the first Sunday after the 15th of Nisan, or Aviv, which God brought the children of Israel into the Promised Land. They were to bring the best first fruits of their harvest and present them to the Lord. Now Jesus, or Yeshua, He's the first fruits. He fulfills these fruits. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Corinthians, is that up there? Here's Paul. Jesus' first fruits. He's talking about Jesus being a Passover lamb. He's talking about Jesus being first fruits. What's up with this guy? He also tells the Corinthians to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I thought he was anti-Torah. Hmm. Yeshua is the first fruits. Yeshua is, is first in order and preeminence, just as the offering of fruits is to be the first and the best portion. He was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits as the first day after the Sabbath. See, that's resurrection. So you got your resurrection Sunday morning thing. It happened on the Feast of First Fruits on, the, on that evening after the Sabbath ended. We've got to stick with his methodology. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And it won't work. And, we, and then when I say Christianity is broken, that's what I mean. We all know people that, are, that were saved five years ago, heck, two and a half years ago, that aren't walking with the Lord anymore. Why? They don't stick to the pattern. If you don't stick to this pattern, it doesn't work. It's real simple. It really is. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, here we go, 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave and the angel answered and said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here for he has risen. Yeshua also being the high priest and always one to observe the feast of Israel gave a first fruits offering of people. And the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many. <laughs> wow, there's your zombie apocalypse. That's rad. The Feast of Weeks. This is the counting of the Omer. Right? Seven weeks, 49 days, seven Sabbaths. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, right? Seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Always going to be a Sunday. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. And you shall proclaim on that same day that it is a holy convocation, holy rehearsal. And you shall do no customary work on it. It's a Sabbath. And it, so you're looking at back-to-back Sabbaths. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. God instructed the children of Israel to count seven Sabbaths from the day after the first Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The day following the 49th day is the Feast of Weeks on the 6th of Sivan. The 49 days, or seven Sabbath counts, are called the counting of the Omer. They connect the Feast of first fruits the barley harvest, with the Feast of Weeks, the beginning of the wheat harvest. On the Feast of Weeks, a wave offering of two loaves of bread made of fine flour and leaven is presented to the Lord. The giving of the law to Moses occurred on, the, on this 50th day, Shavuot, as well as, the Holy Pentecost, as, as well as the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. We have evidence in Acts of Paul interrupting his missionary journeys so that he could go back to Jerusalem to celebrate and observe the Feast of Shavuot, Pentecost. Following his resurrection, Yeshua appeared to his disciples and told them to wait in Jerusalem until he sent forth the promise of his Father. In Luke 24, we know the Holy Spirit was given exactly 50 days following Yeshua's resurrection because the New Testament clearly mentions that. It occurred on Shavuot. So when he told them, remember he walked around with them for 40 days and then he ascended he told them to wait in Jerusalem? He knew they were only going to wait 10 days because it was going to line up with the Scripture. And when the festival of Shavuot arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing, um, distributing themselves and, and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The two loaves of leavened bread offered to God during the feast represent the Jew and non-Jew together as one body in Yeshua, the one new man. And we, and we model that on Sabbath, on Shabbat. So what's the practical application to observe the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks? Observe them. Count the Omer. Bring your offering of first fruits to the house of the Lord. When? The Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So bring your offering of first fruits to the house of the Lord so that we, the leadership, can wave it before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. That's the instruction. Make sure you're not eating any food with leaven leading up to or after that day during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then, count out to 49 days leading up to Pentecost with your family. On the evening of the 49th day, we'll, we'll be here. It'll be the end of our service here. The 50th day begins. That evening is the Sabbath Eve and the Rev Shabbat, making the 50th day, always a Sunday, a high Sabbath and a holy convocation or a holy rehearsal, 
in a holy, you know, it's going to be Shavuot, Pentecost. And I'm amazed at how many Christian churches, they don't even observe Pentecost. Pretty significant. It wouldn't have survived without the Holy Spirit. We will have a community Shabbat that night, so bring your new offering to the Lord and be empowered by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, because that's what this represents, that particular feast. So you've got the practical ways to do what we just discussed. You've got dates on the website. You've got helps, what to purge from your house. Bring your offerings. We'll wave them. This makes sense? Well, I know it makes sense. It's the Bible. But are we going to do it? That's the key. It's important because these are, these are commandments. All throughout the New Testament it says to keep the commandments. First John says that, here's the love of God that you keep His commandments and they're not burdensome. Anyone that says they're with God or love God, a Christian, and don't keep His commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. That's harsh. I think John knows what he's talking about. I mean, I know he does. You know? These are real things that we need to align ourselves with. Because if we don't align ourselves with the Lord and His commandments, what are we going to align ourselves with? Deception, our human reasoning, our practical reasoning. Jesus called that demonic. These are serious things. Not eating leavened bread. You know, purging your house of leaven. This is serious stuff. He's telling you to do it. Now, if you don't believe this, then, then, then we need to take our Bibles and we need to cut them in half and throw away the, toss out the Old Testament. I mean, this is really what it comes down to. And then every time you're in the New Testament, if it says anything about the law in a positive way, Sharpie, block it out. And every time it says to keep the commandments, draw a big, thick, black Sharpie marker line over that. Right? right? right. So, don't do that. Keep the commandments. It's important. It'll change everything. It'll change your life. It'll change your marriage. It'll change your family. Your kids. I mean, we have, that's our fruit. That's our testimony. We've decided to obey the Lord. As for our household, we're going to serve Adonai. Reckless obedience. We don't care where it takes us, what it does to us, how foolish it makes us look, how embarrassing it might be, how inconvenient it makes us, our lives. <laughs> he has inconvenienced us quite a bit these last six to eight years. I can tell you. And, um, but where's the fruit? Well, we're intact, and he's on our side. We got big, juicy fruit. Christianity lacks big, juicy fruit. Why? Because if you're not keeping his commandments, you're not going to bear fruit. And if you're a, a branch that doesn't bear fruit, my father is a gardener, Jesus says. And those branches go into the fire. This isn't... This is, Everything and anything about Christianity. Let's, let's take this Torah law stuff off the table for a second. Okay? Everything that you've been told about Christianity says this is for keeps. Life or death. You're going to be presented with options and decisions. And how you respond determines whether you're a 30-fold, 60-fold, or 80-fold Believer. That's what scripture says. Man, I want, I want the whole enchilada. I want 100% return on my investment. Some are going to rise with the brightness of the moon. Others will rise with the brightness of the stars. Yet others will rise with the brightness of the sun. I want my resurrection to be so bright. And the only way that's going to happen is if I align myself with what he says, how he says it, when he says it, and I do everything I can to run to that will 
to do it as fast as I possibly can. I'm not going to waste any time. If he says, jump up and down, I'm going to ask on one or two legs. And when he inconveniences my life, like I can't go into work on a Monday because God says not to, that's an inconvenience. A lot of us aren't going to do that. And we're going to have every excuse in the world and it'll be a practical, it'll be, it'll be a legit excuse. It doesn't, it doesn't drive with him. It doesn't. But your will, not mine. That's a, that, that has to be our, our life. Not my will, but yours. You do what God would have you do. You do His will. Everything is designed to solicit a response from you. And how you respond determines whether you're His or not. It could be something as small as eating leavened bread. I guarantee you this is how this thing works. And those of you that have done this for any amount of time with any sort of success knows I'm speaking the truth. Well done, good and faithful servant. That should be our goal. And the only way that's going to happen is if He knows us and we abide in Him. I only know those that do the will of my Father. If you obey these things and teach others to do so, you will be great in the kingdom of heaven.